conflicting evidence on a mysterious car. They were the two new bombshell developments this week as the coronial inquest into William Tyrrell's disappearance continues. In this episode, we'll look at who this new person of interest is, who is also a convicted sex offender and has been described in court this week as creepy. Also taking the stand, two locals from Kendall, where William disappeared, with their stories about a suspicious car seen on the day the toddler vanished. We'll also find out why the inquest has been closed off to the public in an effort to protect some key witnesses. So are we a step closer to finding out what happened to William and will the inquest ever help answer the many questions that still remain? I'm Natasha Belling. And I'm Leah Harris. This is Where's William Tyrrell? Before we hear about the evidence that was given this week at the coronial inquest, Leah, can you explain why we will never hear some evidence from five witnesses because the court was closed to the public? So on Friday last week, the media were informed that the court would be closed for the testimony of five anonymous witnesses. They didn't give any specific reasons for why this was the case, and that is why a media organisation got a lawyer to then challenge those closed court orders at the beginning of this week. And it's important to note that these closed court orders, they do happen quite often and there's varying reasons for that and they do have to have a good reason for doing it. That includes risking the safety of the person who might be testifying, revealing police methods that obviously need to be kept from the public. And if it's not challenged, then the public may never hear that evidence that they could have or perhaps should have heard. So by challenging it, it forces the coroner to then make a decision about whether there is enough evidence to suggest that it does need to be kept from the public. So unfortunately, the coroner decided that there was a good reason for closing the court. We don't know specifically what those reasons are, but this is what she said about it and this is not her real voice. Open courts and full publication of evidence given in court assists public confidence and provides proper scrutiny of the justice system. It guards against wrongdoing or unfairness behind closed doors. However, it is also true that in certain cases, publication has the potential to frustrate the operation of justice. I've carefully considered the material in the confidential affidavit. In my view, it establishes sufficient basis making the confidential orders in the circumstances of this case. I'm conscious of and fully support the valuable role the news media play in informing the public about these proceedings, but I instruct the difficult balancing exercise. I've had regard to the following matters, including the high level of public interest in this matter, the principle of open justice and the desirability of placing the least restrictive vetters available on public scrutiny. I've considered all options available to me. But having weighed all the matters which have been put before me, I've decided not to revoke the orders. Leah, is this common practice to withhold evidence or not to identify the witnesses? And why would they argue that that's necessary? It is quite common, particularly when it is an ongoing investigation, like in this case. Um, There are a lot of things to consider, and particularly in preparation for any future court action in a criminal court that may result from this. And there are several different methods of protecting that evidence. And one of those methods is just to keep the identity of the person confidential, but still allow the media to hear the evidence and report on the evidence. So this has obviously gone a step further and completely shut us out from that evidence, um, which again, isn't uncommon, uh, but they do have to have a very good reason for doing so. And obviously the coroner believed that they did. 
There is a possibility, though, Leah, that after the coronial inquest has finished, we may find out who these witnesses are and what evidence they tendered in court because they could recommend to the DPP that further charges are pursued. It is possible that we could eventually hear who these witnesses are or what they have said in court, what their evidence is, and that could be that the coroner decides to reveal some of that in her findings at the end of this inquest or in any future criminal court action that could result from this, and that is definitely a possibility. So there are five witnesses that have given evidence this week, but that was behind the doors of a closed court. In regards to what we do know this week, there was evidence we heard about a new person of interest. Robert Donoghue is a convicted sex offender who was living in the nearby town of Taree and working at a Caltech service station in Lakewood, which is only about seven kilometres from Kendall, around about a 10-minute drive. And at the time, he was volunteering for the local SES when William went missing, and he actually told co-workers that he helped search for William after he disappeared in that huge ground search um, surrounding his foster grandmother's house. And it was only a few days after William vanished that he was actually arrested and charged with sexually assaulting several young intellectually disabled men that he met through the SES. He was convicted of assaulting two of those men and sent to jail for five and a half years with a non-parole period of three years. So this is the first time we've heard about this new person of interest. Why has his name never been mentioned before? It's hard to say why, but as I've mentioned in previous episodes, there are a lot of persons of interest in this case. They had to cast a wide net because there is no obvious person of interest or suspect in this case. And a person of interest doesn't necessarily mean that he is a suspect. It just means that they are someone that needed to be spoken to and looked into by the police, and that is what they did here. Now, he is, as you mentioned, a convicted sex offender, and police searched his van whilst he was behind bars. Yeah, so he was behind bars for a minimum of three years and last year police investigating the disappearance of William Tyrrell actually executed a search warrant on his family property in August last year where they were storing his white van and the court was this week shown a video of that search and this is some audio from that video. provides us the power to uh, search the premises here at Springvale in relation to a, uh, a number of items. Uh, firstly, motor vehicle CR17 Charlie, which is a white Suzuki van uh, and car keys. Uh, we're also looking for mobile phones, laptops, cameras, electronic records, documents, clothing, and any associated, associated items relating to the disappearance of William Tyrrell. So why did they search Mr Donoghue's van? It's hard to say why they searched it so long after William disappeared. It wasn't searched until August last year, which was actually while they were preparing for the coronial inquest. So it's possible that they decided to search his van so that they could present that evidence to the coroner to say, yes, there was a sex offender living in the area, um, but we searched his van and we didn't find anything. But his former manager at the Caltech service station, Sharon Starr, testified this week and told the court that he regularly used to sleep in that van after a shift at the servo and he often parked it at the Kendall swimming pool or the Kendall showgrounds, which you might remember from a previous episode is about a kilometre from William's foster grandmother's house and that was where they set up the staging area during the ground search for him. She also told the court she thought that he was creepy, as did local schoolgirls who used the nearby bus stop. And this is what she said, and this is not her real voice. 
We had a school bus stop, a public bus stop, and some of the young school teenagers, the girls, said they wouldn't come in there when he was working because they didn't like him. He was creepy. Sharon also spoke in court about Mr Donoghue's very bizarre behaviour because they worked together at that service station near where William disappeared. Sharon told the court that he used to bring a star stamp to work that he told her he wanted to use to stamp kids' hands when they came in. And she told them that they didn't do that there, that there was several issues with with doing that um, to the kids that came in and told him that he wasn't allowed to do that anymore. She also said that he once brought a candle to work and lit the flame inside the store, which is obviously an issue at a service station um, where there are signs saying that there can't be any naked flames in the vicinity. So she told him that he couldn't do that for safety reasons and he told her that he just liked the smell of candles. Even more bizarrely, she also said that he kept live chickens inside his van parked outside and wanted to sell their eggs inside the servo. She also told him that he couldn't do that. So what did she say specifically about Mr Donoghue's behaviour or movements the day that William disappeared in 2014? She told the court that she couldn't be 100% sure if he worked the day that William vanished on the 12th of September 2014. She said she thought he did, but she couldn't be completely sure. She did say that the workers clocked in and out at the time at that servo using a fingerprint scanner. So there were records of who was there, but she hadn't been able to access those records yet. So wouldn't that be pretty easy to clarify if there was recorded evidence of when they checked into work and when they checked out? Why haven't they sourced that information? It's hard to say why they haven't. Um, Sharon Starr told the court that she has escalated it to her um, managers or superiors to try and find those records, but at this stage she hasn't been able to source them. And Mr Donoghue's brother Timothy also testified. Yeah, his brother Tim took the stand and didn't actually have a lot of information to provide that was relevant to this case. He said that after Robert went to jail in late 2014, he and his father stored the white van in their shed on the property in Springvale, which is obviously where they searched it last year. And he said that he made sure that it stayed in working condition while his brother was in jail and it has since been re-registered and back on the road now that Robert has actually been released from jail. So, Leah, they searched the van extensively. Did they find any evidence of interest? If they did find anything of interest, they haven't yet revealed it for the purposes of the inquest. Uh, They didn't say in court whether that search found anything, Uh, but Robert Donoghue himself is set to testify at some point during this inquest. Leah, let's talk about these two former friends who also gave evidence at the coronial inquest this week about a suspicious car they saw on the day that William disappeared in September 2014. So there were conflicting reports from these two former friends. They did tell the court they're no longer friends anymore after this. Tim Palmer took the stand first. He said he'd lived in Kendall for about 15 years off and on. He was asked about a conversation he had with his friend Michael McNally last year at his house on Batar Creek Road. As you might remember, the Batar Creek Road intersects with Benaroon Drive, which is where William disappeared. He told the court the two were having a few beers and Mr Palmer claims that's when Mr McNally confided in him, saying that the day William went missing, he was standing in front of his house and saw a white sedan, which looked like a Holden Commodore, driving erratically past him and that the driver appeared to be reaching over into the passenger's side footwell and pushing something down in an effort to perhaps conceal it. 
He said he thought Mr McNally recognised the man but didn't say who it was. All he said in court was that it wasn't Bill Spedding but possibly someone who ran in his circle. He claims that his friend told him he didn't want to tell police because it had been too long and that he was using ice at the time and he didn't want to reveal that and that if anyone asked him about it, he would deny it. Mr Palmer said he then went away and didn't feel like he could just sit on that information. He spoke to his sister about it and she convinced him that he had to go to police. So that's what he did and they are now no longer friends. As you mentioned, he implied that the driver may have been associated with Mr Spinning. What made him make that conclusion? So as you might remember, Bill Spedding, washing machine repairman, visited William's foster grandmother's house in the days before he disappeared, has been named as a person of interest by the police. He has a lawyer representing him at this inquest and his lawyer then questioned him about this on the stand. Mr Palmer claimed that he got the impression Mick, as he called him, his friend, was implying that someone was trying to set up Spedding that it wasn't spedding, but perhaps someone who knew him. What does that mean? That seems to be incredibly confusing. Did he infer, and we have to note here, that Mr Spedding denies any involvement in William's disappearance. Why would he think that someone had set him up? It's hard to say, but they did make a point of saying in the court, particularly Spedding's lawyer, that at the time that this conversation took place, Mr Spedding had been in the media a lot associated with this case, that he was publicly identified as a person of interest and that neither man actually knew Bill Spedding but that they only knew him from what they had seen on the TV. And they made a point of saying that the driver of this car was definitely not Bill Spedding but they did imply that perhaps it was someone who knew him. But this is very interesting evidence because, as you mentioned, they were two friends, they're now former friends, and both of their stories were completely different to one another. That's right. There are conflicting stories. Detectives, after speaking to Mr Palmer, then went and interviewed Michael McNally themselves in the middle of last year. However, he has told them a different story. He then took the stand after his former friend and told the court that that day that William went missing, he had gone to the doctors in a nearby town and he was on his way home when he passed the car outside the Kendall Post Office, so not outside of his house, as Mr Palmer had claimed. He said he noticed that it was a white sedan that he hadn't seen in the Kendall area before, but he denied that the man was pushing something down on the passenger side of the car. Instead, he said it seemed that he had his arm outstretched and said that he was perhaps even shaking it, trying to get a better phone signal because the phone signal in Kendall wasn't very good and that he only saw him for a split second. He was then asked why he would think to tell someone that four years later after William disappeared and he said that he'd never seen the car in Kendall before and that he had had a bit too much to drink when he told his friend Mr Palmer about this sighting. He was then asked about another local man, Jeff Owen, who he apparently played darts with at the local Kendall club at the time. He said he didn't know the man very well and he was then asked if he knew that Mr Owen was driving a white sedan at the time which he said he was not aware of. Now, important to note here, Jeff Owen is also on the witness list, so we are expected to hear testimony from him in the inquest. And he is a a local man who installed decking at William's foster grandmother's house prior to his disappearance. So we will hear more about him in the coming hearings. So although these two men have conflicting stories about exactly what the car was doing at the time and the person driving it, they both identify it was a white sedan which is the same as the vehicle that was spotted in Benaroon Drive the morning that William disappeared. 
Yeah, so Mr. McNally did confirm he did see a white sedan and that he noticed that it was out of character for the area. He hadn't seen the car in the area before. And one of those cars that we've spoken extensively about in previous episodes that William's foster mother saw parked on the street the morning William disappeared was a white sedan. So, Leah, what happens next with the coronial inquest? The week after this episode is released, the inquest moves to Tari, which is near Kendall on the mid-north coast where William disappeared, and that will allow a number of locals to testify, including Bill Spedding, the washing machine repairman, Tony Jones, who is another person of interest and a known pedophile who lived in the area. Neighbour Paul Savage is also um, set to testify in Tari next week. And we will keep you posted on all these new developments as the coronial inquest continues into William Tyrrell's disappearance. Where's William Tyrrell? is produced and presented by Leah Harris and Natasha Belling. Produced and edited by Stuart Buckland. The audio work done by the 10 team of Mitch Willard, Bevan Tantu and Josh Pollock. Additional voices by Kim Kind and Katie Hill. If you want more information about this case or this podcast series, please visit 10 Daily and go to the dedicated Where's William Tyrrell section. If you have any comments or questions for the show, please contact William at network10.com.au. If you have any information that may assist this case at all, please contact police or Crime Stoppers on 1800 000. If you would like to find out more about the Where's William campaign, please visit www.wereswilliam.org. This has been a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. <laughs>